Hey, Steven here. We're going to start right up here in just a minute, but before we do, I want to remind you that GTM's two-day conference on California's distributed energy future is coming right up in two weeks on March 8th and 9th in San Francisco. There is a dizzying amount of activity underway in California right now. New rates, new wholesale market design, tons of new grid investments, and a new bill to get 100% renewables in the state. We're going to be talking about it all with many of the top figures in California's electricity sector, and you, yes you, the Energy Gang listeners, can get a 10% discount if you sign up today. Go to greentechmedia.com events, and you'll find California's distributed energy future right there at the top, and then use the promo code ENERGYGANG, all one word, ENERGYGANG, when you register. And of course, you can use that opportunity to check out all our upcoming events. Hope to see you there. And of course, a big thank you to our podcast sponsor, Keiko New Energy, which is the fastest growing solar inverter company in the Americas. Keiko has been in business for more than 100 years, and it has been making superior German quality PV inverters since the 1990s. It's been manufacturing many of them right in San Antonio, Texas, since 2013. With a wide range of residential, commercial, and utility scale inverters, Keiko works with developers and installers in every corner of the solar market making it the preferred brand in the U.S. and throughout the Americas. Learn more about Keiko's superior quality and service at keiko-newenergy.com. From Green Tech Media, this is The Energy Gang, a weekly digest on energy, clean tech, and the environment. I'm Stephen Lacey. The scope of the Environmental Protection Agency expanded dramatically under President Obama. Now under President Trump and new administrator Scott Pruitt, the agency is likely to be scaled way back. Just how far back is unclear. But there are a lot of clues, including 7,500 pages of Scott Pruitt's emails. We've got a national reporter with us who's been covering the EPA and energy politics very closely. We'll discuss Pruitt's emails and his approach to running the EPA. Then, autonomy in the energy sector. Oil and gas jobs are the latest to come under threat. What is next? Joining me as always is Catherine Hamilton, a partner with 38 North Solutions in Washington, D.C. Hey, Catherine. Hi, it is just a beautiful April day here in Washington, D.C. Jigger Shaw is the president of Generate Capital, normally in New York City. He is in Savannah, Georgia this week, kind enough to join us on his vacation. Jigger, what's got you in Savannah? Just uh, a little family reunion, so just give everybody a big howdy. <laughs> this week's guest joins us from Washington, D.C. as well. Emily Holden is a reporter with e and News's Climate Wire, where she's been painstakingly reporting on the mechanics of the EPA's clean power plan. Before that, she covered the federal budget, taxes, and energy policy over the years. Emily, welcome. Thank you. You're actually joining us from the halls of the Conservative Political Action Conference, known as CPAC. And this is an event that brings together the who's who in conservative politics and media. Uh, what kind of energy and climate stories are you following there? So it's the first full day here. They started yesterday uh, and had a, some sort of training sessions. And the first panel I went to this morning was about fake climate news. Um, and basically, the, the panelists there were talking about how they really feel emboldened under the Trump administration that their views about climate science um, and they're they're skeptical or or opposing most mainstream climate science will will finally be heard under this administration. How representative of the the conservative movement is this crowd? 
These are people who are really motivated, I think, to, to move the party to the right, with some exceptions. But some of the people I talked to this morning, just sort of regular attendees included kind of like stay-at-home moms who were here because they feel that the country has been going in the wrong direction and they want to be more involved in politics. So, so people like that and also you know, state and party leaders and, and national political leaders. Well, we appreciate you taking time out of your reporting day to talk with us about this very newsy week. And as I said, we're going to talk about the future of EPA under Scott Pruitt, who thinks that that agency has been going in the wrong direction. But first, if a court ordered you to release all your work emails, what do you think they'd find? For me, a lot of harried responses and interview requests, along with abundant apologies for taking so long to respond to people, the occasional GIF, a lot of forwarded newsletters and links, and a healthy dose of acronyms. Former Oklahoma Attorney General Scott Pruitt's emails contain a lot of similar content, meeting requests, links to op-eds and articles, and obscure legal jargon. But there's one notable exception, a strong alliance with the fossil fuel industry. So this week, as Pruitt started his job as America's top environmental cop, 7,500 pages of his past emails were released on court order, and they provide this window into how he'll manage the agency that he has spent a long time attacking. In fact, he sued the EPA 14 times. Catherine, let's start with some background here. What can you tell us about Pruitt's career? Yeah, so he's 49 years old. He served in the Oklahoma Senate for eight years from 1998 to 2006. So that was kind of early on in his career. He ran for attorney general and did not make it the first time. And then in 2010, he became the attorney general of Oklahoma. He's very conservative, kind of a traditional conservative on social issues. He's very uh, much of a federalist. So the new kind of federalist, which is really getting authority back into the states, He is a self-described, and this is in quotes, that he described himself this way, leading advocate against the EPA's activist agenda. So that's what he's been focused on. As you said, he sued the EPA over a dozen times, unsuccessfully, I might add. Um, he also, when he was at the attorney's general's, attorney general's office, he moved attorneys from environmental protection to the public protection unit. So he he changed a lot of their function from environmental protection just to public product protection. Uh, when he sued the EPA, it was over the Clean Power Plan, of course, and WOTUS, which is Waters of the United States, that dictates which bodies of water the the federal government has authorities over, and you know, and what kind of authority they have. It's a it's a big piece um, of rulemaking that was completed the same year that the Clean Power Plan was in 2015, um, and this was for the most part on behalf of utilities that were unwilling to comply with coal regulations that were governed by by the statutes that produced these plans. Okay, so federalism is a big piece of his philosophy. And he gave a speech to the staff of the Environmental Protection Agency this week, and he outlined the importance of his federalist philosophy and how he'll run EPA. Emily, what do we know about how Pruitt may take that vision uh, and apply it to the Environmental Protection Agency. What did we learn this week during that speech? I I don't know how much in particular we learned from the speech, except sort of what his tone could be with agency employees. I think that he was trying to to reassure them a bit. Um, I don't know if that was successful. Um, Most of the people that we've talked to who were leaving EPA that day said that they, you know, they were still worried, but they would give them a chance and they would see what, what is to come. But uh, I think the the Clean Power Plan is a good example of what he 
might do instead. He has said that he thinks that that rule, which would you know reduce power sector carbon emissions, um, has stepped outside the boundaries of what EPA can do. He he says frequently that he thinks those sort of things should be left up to the states. And I think what he would focus on if he had to replace that would be much more narrow, you know, something that looked just at coal plants in particular. Yeah. And I would just jump in and say that, remember, most of EPA is, these are career people that have been working on regulation for a long time. And everything that they do is based on statute. So it's not like they're creating statute. They're just executing on statute. And I think part of what um, was a little disheartening to the to some of the people who were there, first of all, not everybody is a Democrat who works there. You know, they're just all kinds of people who work at the EPA. But also he talked a lot about being open and transparent and objective and engaging stakeholders, which is exactly what EPA did when they were developing the Clean Power Plan and WOTUS. They were all of those things. So I think part of this is a little bit of a disconnect of someone coming in who doesn't really know how the EPA functions into a place that is functioning the way it's supposed to do and, and it's designed to do. So that that disconnect, hopefully that can be kind of sealed up with the, with the um, employees that are there. But I think you know, their job is to execute on the mission of EPA and the statutes. Yeah, well, this seems like a reoccurring theme over and over again within Trump uh, cabinet officials, right? Is that, you know, wh- whether it was um, Rick Perry, who said that he wanted to shut down the Department of Energy and then realized it was really managing our nuclear, um, you know, assets. And then, you know, Pruitt coming in at EPA saying that he really wants to, you know, minimize EPA to its smallest amount. I mean, how much do you think that these folks are all going to basically, you know, start to be humbled by um, by the agencies they run? It seems like Rick Perry pretty quickly, but I mean, Pruitt seems dedicated to the cause here. It's a, it's a really good question. It's pretty early to tell because Pruitt didn't make explicit statements like Rick Perry did. Rick Perry said, I sat down with officials, I changed my mind. Pruitt hasn't said anything so explicit, but he did take a different tone. Is this kind of just a first week PR thing to reassure employees? Or do you get the sense that he's taking the job seriously? Well, I think he's taking the job seriously in, in the sort of the agenda of the regulations that he's he said repeatedly that he would want to roll back and that he's brought lawsuits against. He truly believes that those are illegal. And I think if he's in charge of the EPA, he's going to do everything that he can to reverse some of those to make them legal in his eyes. Uh, as he is as a person, I mean, the people I've talked to who have worked with him, whether it's other state attorney generals or people in industry, they say he's he's pretty likable. They think he will be a good boss. And so I think that's sort of yet to be seen. Yeah. I mean, my sense is that the more I read about EPA and the way these things work is, you know, the, the rules that are sort of under contemplation, like the Clean Power Act and others, you know, can get thwarted. But the stuff that's really been in place for a very long time, um, you know, he really is going to be in charge of making sure that those get executed properly. You know, things like the Atomic Energy Act and the Clean Air Act, you know, that was that was passed or the Clean Water Act or, you know, the Endangered Species Act. I mean, some of these things, I don't know how he can proactively you know, undermine them from his chair, um, you know, without, you know, significant lawsuits coming from environmental groups. Well, that's a a really good segue into what will happen with the Clean Power Plan. Um, 
And Emily, I think you are one of the foremost expert journalists on the Clean Power Plan. You have been covering this beat very, very closely for the last couple of years. What is the pathway for starting to dismantle Obama's EPA climate regulations? Right. I think that's a good point. While Pruitt might want to take apart a lot of these regulations for the Clean Power Plan, it's, it's going to be pretty difficult. So, And there are a couple of different things you could do, but, but essentially for the EPA itself to roll this back, they would have to come back with another rulemaking, go through the whole formal process and either say, you know, here's why we think what we did was wrong previously or replace it with something um, that, the, that Pruitt believes to be legal, um, which would not have the same emissions reductions at all. Um, But that will take a very long time. You'll have to take comment, um, review that comment, take a long time to develop a rule. There will be lawsuits from environmentalists um, and public interest groups. And that court process also could play out for a long time. And and even if they do succeed in stalling this, which I I think is is very likely is that this plays out over at least several years. at the end of the day, there are underlying laws that would be very difficult to gut that say that you know EPA has an obligation to work on this issue. So also, Emily, doesn't it have to continue to work its way through the court system? I mean, obviously, EPA is going to decide not to continue to fight on behalf of their rule. But will others do that? Will, they st- will it still go through the circuit court and the- then the Supreme Court process before a decision is made? So that's one of the complicating factors here. I think some people in the industry expected that when President Trump took office, he would send a letter to the court essentially saying, you know, we don't believe that this rule is legal. We're reevaluating it. And if you would like to stop considering it for now, that would be great. Something along those lines. Um, He hasn't done that yet. He hasn't taken action on the clean power plan at all or issued any sort of executive order uh, about what he wants Scott Pruitt to do. And most of the people I've talked to have said, that's because he was waiting for Scott Pruitt to be confirmed. They didn't want to complicate that process or make it more difficult for him to get through Senate confirmation. Um, so basically, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit has been considering this case since they heard oral arguments in September, and a decision is supposed to come down any day now. And that could affect the calculus of what Scott Pruitt decides to do in response. So that, that sounds like you're giving President Trump the benefit of the doubt, which I'm not sure I would do. I think he probably just has, is surrounded by chaos and couldn't get around to it because Steve Bannon's not focused on it. But um, I'm curious in the emails whether you actually feel like um, there's something unusual about the coziness that Scott Pruitt has with the fossil fuel industry. So I think I would say it's not that often that we get to peer into emails of, of public officials with specific industries. And so I don't know that I in particular have a, a direct comparison. Um, I think a lot of what we saw in these most recent emails, we kind of already knew. Um, the New York Times did a good piece in, in 2014 about Scott Pruitt and how he had worked with energy companies in his state. And he essentially got language from them on a letter they wanted sent to EPA and without many changes sent that and put it on letterhead with his signature about how they were estimating the air pollution effects from um, gas wells. And so I think this gave you a little more color, a little more background into how his staffers were talking to energy company employees. But I don't know that it necessarily told us something new. Yes, I agree. Nor did it say that he was doing anything illegal. 
but it suggests a very friendly relationship with uh, the with many fossil fuel companies operating in Oklahoma and nationally. Were there any anecdotes out of these new emails that you or your team uncovered that were particularly interesting? So I think one thing that we found interesting was how closely his staff was working, not just with energy companies, but with conservative foundations like AFP and also a local group called the Oklahoma Council of Public Affairs, which bills itself as a sort of a local version of the Heritage Foundation, um, and setting up his appearances where he would speak and talking about what his message would be and how it compared to their own message and, and sort of streamlining that. Catherine or Jigger, what is different here in your eyes? The cut and paste job happens a lot in lawmaking, in lobbying. It's you know, it's known that you kind of take the pe- the interests of the people you're representing and a lot of cut and pasting happens when you're kind of crafting a piece of legislation or something else that benefits their interests. Now, Pruitt was basically doing what a lot of other interest groups do, but he is, of course, attorney general in Oklahoma and representing the people's interests. So there is something different here. But I'm wondering what in your eyes is different from how a lot of other lobbying and cozy relationships work in politics. Yeah, so I've been a lobbyist for a long time. And and I'm considered a subject matter expert. So I'll get called up by different offices to say, hey, do you have any idea? You know, I'm interested in this subject about clean energy. You know, can let's let's talk about what that could look like. And so it's really, you know, with lobbying, it's it's a constitutional right. You go and you can, you know, express your opinion, but you can also convey information and expertise to someone to help them formulate what the policy is that they're interested in moving forward. So there's nothing wrong with that. The issue is when you then take it to be exactly, you know, if that becomes the the mouthpiece for someone else. Um, and one thing that I just have concern about is that the, the mission of the EPA is to protect human health and the environment, air, water, and land. So his mission is going to be humans, the health and the environment. His mission is not create regulation that benefits business. I mean, that's not part of the mission of EPA. So he's going to have to shift from really taking on the part of business to really looking at how do I protect human health and the environment. And it's that's very clear in EPA's mission statement. And, you know, I know that there's some flexibility, certainly EPA has to work with states, um, local tribal agencies uh, to in the in the manner in which they execute the compliance of environmental laws. Uh, so maybe he will give more deference to states uh, in because he seems to be more of a federalist. But in the end, he still is mission driven now that he's in the federal government. Yeah, that's what scares me about him. I think I actually don't have a problem with the cutting and pasting piece of it. The problem that I have is that he seems particularly dedicated to the cause over a very long period of time. I mean, even when you look at Oklahoma, where, you know, um, his predecessor, Drew Edmondson, you know, alleged that Tyson Foods and other poultry companies were dumping too much chicken manure into the river, you know, such that the river was choked with toxic algae. As soon as he became attorney general, he dropped the case downgraded it to a voluntary investigation. And then amazingly, the poultry industry donated $40,000 to his reelection campaign. He just seems very focused on figuring out how to be business friendly at the, you know, like, to the detriment of human health. He just thinks that we're we worry a little bit too much about human health, which seems 
like an odd thing for an attorney general to do. The other, you know, <clears throat> the other piece here is the earthquakes. I mean, Oklahoma has been riddled with earthquakes because of fracking in the last decade. And, you know, Oklahoma is not a place where you get a lot of earthquakes in general. But in 2015, they endured 857 earthquakes with a magnitude above 3.0. A lot of property damage, a lot of other issues going on. And residents of the state of Oklahoma have taken to the courts to actually start suing, you know, oil and gas companies. And Scott Pruitt's been siding with the oil and gas companies over Oklahoma residents. So it just, it feels like he's very dedicated to figuring out how to bend the rules for corporations and not really susceptible to sort of seeing it from the sort of human side of things. Yeah, I would just cut in. I, I think, so I wrote a story um in January with the headline, How Scott Pruitt Rode a Wave of Federalism to Power. And when he was coming into office, this was sort of a time when state Republican attorneys general around the country were really pushing this argument that the federal government was out of control and that states should be in charge of many of the things that the government, especially the executive branch, was was trying to sort of legislate on its own. And it's a little difficult to tell whether that is is something that he has he has always felt uh, versus whether it's it's something that he is is doing on behalf of companies. I think a lot of people would say that is genuine. He you know this is how he thinks that the country should be run. He has a real view that what the executive branch has been doing is illegal. Well, I think the Bush administration actually shows you know probably that this isn't going to be that bad. Um, that ultimately he can slow walk things, he can do stuff, but ultimately. You know, environmental laws are one of the unique places where outside groups can actually lead lawsuits to force the EPA to actually do its job. And my sense is there's going to be hundreds of millions of dollars raised for NRDC and others to be able to do just that. Um, you know, my my sense is, is that that, you know, the, a lot of the populations that are impacted by the slow walking of regulations are going to have to get more vocal and they probably will get more vocal because this is the kind of stuff that's really great for television and really great for media to pick up on. And there are stories that people love reading and images that people, you know, it, that breaks your heart. And so uh, my sense is that he's going to have a lot less impact than even he thinks he could have um, just because EPA is just one of those places where yeah and if that's right if congress is also trying to roll back the affordable care act so people are losing their health care benefits and they're in places where the environment is getting worse and often those are in rural settings and in trump country so you know this is gonna i, I think you're gonna get see people a lot more engaged and as they engage on the health care side they're also going to engage in the environmental side the other thing that you find with epa is that when you slow up regulation and try to proactively repeal stuff, it sort of takes five years. I mean, it's really hard to get something done in four years just because of all of the steps that you're required, which Carol Browner learned during the Clinton administration, which is why she ran out of time for half of the stuff she wanted to do. And she got Lisa Jackson to do start everything on day one. Um, it's not clear to me whether, you know, if Trump only serves one term, that Pruitt's going to have any impact at all. So, I, I think a lot of that is is true about how long it could take to reverse some of the Obama administration's efforts here. But I think it's also important to note that there are programs like, like think about the enforcement shop, for example, at EPA. We reported that from, from talking with sources familiar with the administration's thinking, 
that they could potentially close that shop was, which is actually pretty much what happened um, under the Reagan administration, under EPA administrator Ann Gorsuch. Um, and I, I talked with I talked with someone who was working at EPA at that time, who who was no longer with EPA, who essentially said, you know, she ended up moving to another office because they just couldn't they couldn't bring environmental enforcement cases at all. They were told not to, and so they couldn't prosecute companies for pollution in the same way. And, and so that had a, a real impact for a few years. Well, but I don't think it had an impact. I mean, this is what I'm saying is that if, if EPA doesn't bring a lawsuit against a company, that doesn't mean the company can pollute with impunity because if they decided to like, let's say, not follow the law and put a bunch of stuff in there that would pollute, um, as soon as another person came into office, they would literally have to shut down their plant. Right. And so you're seeing a lot of companies just say that, like a lot of the utility CEOs saying he might make the regulations a little bit easier to comply with. But we're still going to comply with what we think is going to happen under a new administration because we can't take a 25 year coal plant and just shut it down four years from now because, you know, we've got a less friendly EPA administrator. I think that's absolutely true for the utility sector. I, I think that they're all kind of looking to the next administration and expecting stricter carbon regulation than they might have seen otherwise. I, I think it might not necessarily be as true for other industries that the EPA keeps an eye on. And you talk to many of the CEOs of top utilities and they will say, this transition is happening anyway, with or without the clean power plan. We're making the investments for a variety of reasons for local policy reasons and for economic reasons. So the U.S. is already on track to kind of hit the targets under the clean power plan anyway, with or without the policy. Yeah, and our, our economy is global and globally, everybody else is moving to lower carbon emissions. So in order for people, companies to be competitive, they have to do the same. Emily, you've uh, cataloged how states are going to meet Obama's climate regulations crafted by the EPA for the last couple of years. And now I guess you're going to catalog the demise of those regulations, or at least the attempted battle against those regulations under Pruitt. You're a beat reporter. You've got this really specific focus. What is it like to suddenly find yourself covering this jarring shift in the story? It's been really interesting. I mean, I was writing the night of the election, you know, late into the night. And I think, you know, a lot of the consultants even didn't really have their white papers ready to go on this on what this would mean for the energy sector. You know, they had a a backup version that they did not think they were going to need to use. And, and so it took a, a lot of quick, you know, shifting of years to think out what this would mean. Um, this beat in particular, though, has seen so many different phases. I mean, I've been following it basically since the, the draft rule came out several years ago. And then during that time, people were just trying to understand it. Then the final came out and it was very different. Then you had states planning, you had some refusing to plan and then a lot of them said, OK, we will because our utilities think it's a good idea and this is probably going to move forward. You know, at, at one point you had a lot of states looking at carbon trading, um, even behind the scenes, even Republican states, because they thought that it would be the least cost and the simplest option if they did have to comply with this rule. You know, and then everything changed. The Supreme Court stay came down. A lot of planning stopped. Then again, in September, you know, it looked like EPA had a really great day in court. And I think people were starting to think that, you know, maybe they should look at their backup plans. And, and then with the election, it all flipped again. So really, nothing can surprise me on this beat. It, it keeps you on your toes. Emily Holden is a reporter with Climate Wire. You can read her articles at eenews.net and follow her on Twitter 
at Emily H. Holden. Thanks a lot for your time. Really appreciate it. I know you're running around there, so we'll let you go. And um, good luck reporting this ever-evolving beat. We'll keep tuned to uh, the stories that you drum up. Thank you. This is the moment of the show when we stop the tape and talk about our sponsor, Keiko New Energy. We are grateful to have Keiko as a sponsor. Keiko New Energy is one of the fastest-growing inverter companies in the Americas, a result of its commitment to quality, top-notch performance, and state-of-the-art technology. Keiko produces a robust portfolio of inverters for residential, commercial, and utility-scale applications. Leading developers continue to choose Keiko because of its superior engineering and unmatched levels of technical support and customer service. Keiko produces its inverters for the Americas in San Antonio, Texas, where 20% of its employees are U.S. military veterans. Keiko is ready to serve any installer or developer looking to maximize their solar production. You can learn more about Keiko's inverter models and its commitment to quality at keiko-newenergy.com. Thanks for their support. The New York Times this week published a thought-provoking article on automation in the oil and gas sector. The piece featured some noteworthy stats. For example, today, there are one-third the drilling rigs operating in the U.S. as there were in 2014, but production is down only around 10% from record highs. So even with 163,000 jobs lost before the 2014 oil price crash, production is near historic highs still, and only a fraction of the jobs have returned. Robots are going to take more and more of our jobs, and the fossil fuel sector is in the throes of its own automation transition, a transition that is good for producers, but bad for jobs. The question is, when is that transition coming for labor-intensive clean tech? Jigger, any thoughts on that New York Times article to start? Well, I thought it was a fascinating article. It doesn't surprise me. Um, you know, and I don't think this is for cost-saving purposes, when I, uh, which I thought the New York Times really got this wrong on sort of what the drivers were. I mean, this is really driven by, I think, safety. Um, in general, a lot of these jobs are not safe jobs. A lot of these jobs are subject to repetitive stress injuries and a lot of other issues. And, and you know, the oil industry, for all of its sort of, you know, like sort of evil characteristics that people like to put on them, is a, you know, pretty upstanding, you know, sort of industry that tries really hard to keep its workers safe. And some of these jobs are really difficult to do that in. And robots and automated drilling rigs and other things provide an ability to do that. Um, so I, I, I thought the story in the New York Times was fascinating um, on, you know, uh, by Clifford Cross. And, and I also think that it is going to come to the clean energy industry. I think it comes to every industry, whether it's, you know, agriculture or auto manufacturing or whatever. I mean, as industries mature, they figure out how to make each of their jobs into, you know, sort of more discrete things which require less flexibility and therefore it can be done by a robot. Yeah, there was a USA Today story too that really um, looked at across sector and across industries what could be automated. And you can see your jobs that sort of combine a need for physical strength and precision um, and that are very predictable and repetitive are much easier and probably, as Jigger says, safer to automate. Um, I've been to lots of plants recently that are robotic, so Tesla, Bloom, Proterra. But um, one of the most interesting ones I visited was Voith Hydro. 
And what they 90% of what they do is rehab 100-year-old pieces of hydroelectric dams. But they also have a, um, in their sort of low-impact hydro um, segment of what they do, it requires really high precision. So they use um, robotics and, and lasers to do that, but it's really important to have humans there too. So the human impact, you know, it takes five years to go through the welding program there because they need such a high level of skills in combination with the automation to make sure that everything is done in, in the highest quality way. And, and so I think this is just a matter of evolving so that our, our labor force changes its skill set or grows its skill set to match what we need in industry and what we expect from industry. I mean, one of the only places where this hasn't happened is frankly in home building, you know, and, and we've had the technologies to make manufactured homes for years at much higher quality. And we just, you know, have continued to have stick built homes. Um, but, you know, but I think this is just, you know, the way of things. And I think, you know, we are certainly in an upswing in the renewable energy industry where we are hiring, you know, three to 5,000 people a month, which is great. But, you know, at some point, 20, 25 years from now, we probably will see uh, declines in that, um, that um, those employment numbers due to automation. Probably faster than that. I want to address two points that you both made. The first one, Jigger, is what kind of jobs are being replaced in oil and gas? And you're absolutely right that many of them are the most dangerous jobs, either because of acute danger or long-term danger associated with, you know, their stress, their repetitive stress-related injuries. But these are jobs that people are really proud of. You know, a lot of folks who work with their hands are proud of the fact that they may have a more dangerous job. These are the kind of gritty jobs that America was built on. And when you take a look at the jobs that are replacing them, they require a lot of education and many years of training. And so inevitably, you're kind of <laughs> supporting the, for lack of a better phrase, the elite, the people who are coming out of universities, uh, who are getting MBAs, who are going through engineering programs, or maybe even getting their PhDs. And that feeds into your point, Catherine. Um, yes, these offer a lot of really exciting opportunities, but the government is not doing anything to prepare these people for the next generation workforce. They are just doing a terrible job at grappling with how you get the folks who are working with their hands into schools and preparing for these wildly different job opportunities. So there's a major problem here that I don't think we've even begun to wrestle with. Yeah, so I think two things. One is we still do need people who know how to work with their hands. We still need builders um, for the grid, for roads, for pipelines, for bridges, for infrastructure. So I, I, I still think you need those skills. You also quite often, in addition to those skills, need some technical skills but that don't require a PhD, but this re require technical training. And I think you're right. We have to have a really intentional transition effort from jobs that are being lost to the new sectors that are really growing and try to figure out what are those skill sets, how do we grow those skill sets. I know that I've mentioned this group before, but the Coalfield Development Corporation in West Virginia has this quality jobs initiative where they're teaching former coal workers how to do other things using the skills that they have. And whether that is building homes or um, putting solar on rooftops 
or operating um, wind plants, which a, a lot of vets are doing that. People, especially submarine operators, you know that that skill transitions really well to operating in a in a wind facility. So I think we have to have a much more intentional program, and I think it would be great if the Department of Labor could do that because that's something that the president seems to want to really push is um, making sure that we have jobs in manufacturing and to transition those skills. Well, I think, I mean, just there's two pieces here. One is, Stephen, I think to your point, um, look, I get the fact that people want to do dangerous jobs, but, you know, as somebody who has employed a lot of people, I don't love seeing people get hurt on the job. So it sort of is what it is, right? I mean, you know, there's going to be the natural tension and I'm happy to side with um, employee safety over their desire to do risky stuff. Um, I, you know, I think on Catherine's point, I, you know, I have pushed this a lot and I've come to the realization that the problem with worker retraining is that people just need to freaking move. Um, nobody wants to move. Even Hillary Clinton's like big, like coal retraining program started off in the first paragraph saying, we will not require you to move. And that is what dooms all of these retraining programs. And so, I mean, my sense is that people really need to go into Indeed.com, look for a job that needs their skills. And then, you know, the federal government should just pay that company to hire that person for an entire year and to train them into that new job. But it's going to require them to move. I mean, as someone who is a first generation immigrant to the U.S., you know, most of you know my family members and our family moved when we didn't have employment. And I think that's the biggest problem with unemployment in these areas is people won't freaking move. I think you've actually made that point before on the show. I think the most disheartening thing for me in, you know, the Trump era politics is that, in my opinion, a lot of pundits and analysts and people in the press are not really paying attention to the underlying economic factors that contributed to our very divisive, explosive, vitriolic politics and the rise of Trump. And so you have a lot of people that feel just completely left behind in this country, as we all know. That's that's clear. But no one is talking about the actual solutions. And instead, we're talking about an immigration ban and getting rid of people's health care and not actually the underlying economic factors across this country. And this feeds into government programs to prepare people for the next generation workforce. And energy is one of the most dramatically fast-changing industries there is. And the government really hasn't even begun to grapple with this. Well, I mean, look, I, I, I think the government deliberately, you know, basically put their head in the sand on these issues. But there's definitely a lot of us that have talked about it. I mean, I lived it, right? I mean, I grew up in Sterling, Illinois, which had the seventh largest steel mill in the country that was dying when I was there and was dead by the time I left. And none of the people that I graduated from high school with has ever really gotten a decent job since um, we graduated from high school. And they probably all voted for Trump because, um, you know, 20 years went by and they're still making 12 to 14 bucks an hour. But I think that this occurred because, you know, for a long time, we just believed so strongly in this trickle-down economics, right? I mean, Bill Clinton basically moved the entire Democratic Party that direction and sort of said, look, we'll retrain you, don't worry about it. You know, never mind the fact that none of the data, actually all of the data, sorry, shows that the retraining didn't work compared to a control group. Um, 
but they didn't change it under Obama. They didn't change the way that they trained workers. They basically said, well, whatever, we're getting a lot of internet donors and a lot of other donors on the other side. And so who cares about these people? And you had people like Rick Santorum and people like Pat Buchanan before him and others that really, you know, catered uh, to these workers and these people. And Trump basically just exploited an entire loophole here. But I mean, we've known that this was a problem and we've deliberately, you know, put our head in the sand for a long time. It's a helpful exercise to think about the kinds of jobs in clean tech or the utility space that could be lost over the coming decade or decades. I was just putting together a really quick list as I thought about this before we started recording. And I, you know, utility linemen or the line people who are um, out in the field actually doing many of the repairs. And Catherine, you can speak to that. Uh, phone operators and back office staff within utilities as more of those operations get automated. There's just hardware manufacturing in the clean tech space. Um, I don't quite know. Maybe, Jigger, you can you can share some thoughts on how installation could um, become a little bit more automated. Uh, you know, site location scouting, for example, is one way to cut down on resources. And then there's just this broad O&M space out in the field in terms of power plant management, cleaning panels, inspecting equipment, and so forth. So there's a ton of different areas where automation could have a pretty significant impact. Oh, for sure. I mean, I think there was that great article, which I can't remember off the top of my head who wrote it, but, you know, about exactly how automation is going to affect solar jobs. And I agreed with almost all of it. Um, and, you know, I, th I think that, but I, you know, my sense is, is that what I, what I believe is that solar is, is really the tip of the spear and that there, those jobs will remain by helping people really get to net zero energy buildings. I mean, to me, solar is just the sex appeal that sort of gets you in the door and gets the sale. But then you've got to go to the smart home and you've got to get to smart appliances and you've got to get to all of the other pieces that require someone to enter the home and do work in your home, not unlike the cable company or the electric company or some of the other jobs that really haven't been lost to automation. And so I agree with you completely that the job characteristics are going to change, but I don't know that they're going to be lost. Yeah, so when I was at a utility back in the day, we used to use divining rods to find where underground lines were. <laughs> so, so and, and there were guys that did this and were fully committed to the fact that they could find anything underground, and I believed them. Um, and, you know, technology changes things. So there are different, there are pieces of equipment that can do that now, and that's fine. I think um, that is kind of the way the world works is that we, we evolve, we learn new things, we become more productive, and we've just also democratized innovation so so many more people are innovating in all different parts of especially the electric grid but everywhere else too and um i think you know society is changing i think what we don't want to lose is you know i i am not of the opinion that we necessarily need everybody to move i think we we want to make sure that people can find what they need and what they want and what they can grow where they are i mean west virginia is one of the most beautiful states in the country people own their homes in a lot of cases in other cases they're building a more affordable housing there and using solar and i think it's important for people to find an ability to do what they want to do where they want to do it go read this piece and it will be linked on our podcast page in the show notes there on your mobile device you can click through the link or just go to greentechmedia.com and check it out it is eye-opening and it's um i was surprised to see that tens of thousands of jobs basically vanished overnight you know from 2015 
until now. Tens of thousands of jobs in oil and gas that are never coming back. And it has me thinking about at what point that happens in the utility sector or in you know clean tech, which is still very jobs intensive. Let's tell our listeners something they don't know. Catherine, what is your story this week? Yeah, so there were a couple of reports that came out of Michigan, one from the Advanced Energy Economy Institute and the other uh, a report that was jointly done by Michigan Agency for Energy and Michigan Public Service Commission. And what they found that is that demand response could completely eliminate the need for new power plants in Michigan. They could avoid new natural gas plants. They could avoid having to prop up nuclear plants. They could get 2,000 megawatts from summer demand through demand demand reduction through demand response. And, um, you know, this is something that is tried and true and utilities are on board. And I feel like, you know, if we can just keep moving with that, that's one very simple way to reduce having to build more power plants. Well, you know, what's interesting is that The Economist, who I've railed against for years, published a piece um, this last week making the exact same argument that, you know, that renewable energy was completely disrupting, you know, sort of our markets, and that we really should turn to demand response and load shifting as the way to accommodate renewables as opposed to, you know, more natural gas uh, gener- central generation. Jigger, what do you got for a story this week? So I wanted to highlight to all of our listeners that uh, this week there was um, the 2017 Advanced Nuclear Summit uh, by Third Way um, in D.C., and um, it was an interesting collection of people, you know, a lot of senators, a lot of congressmen, um, AFL-CIO, and then, you know, some of the other uh, folks who've uh, been there before from um, Carol Browner, who's, you know, on the leadership council at Nuclear Matters and some of these other folks. And so it does feel like the nuclear industry is finally getting out of their own way and trying to come together around a positive message of sort of technology improvement and growth. Um, I don't quite think that they've hit their stride yet, but it was interesting to see the, uh, the conference. Yeah, I, I feel bad that uh, the clean power plan is going to be dismantled because they really had the zero emission going for them uh, federally, and now they got to use other arguments. Well, uh, just a quick note on Tesla here. They had their shareholder call yesterday, and the second half of this year is going to be a big one because Musk said that they're going to roll out the solar roof in the second half of 2017 and also expect to, by the fourth quarter of this year, be making 5,000 Model 3 cars per week and possibly at the beginning of 2018, 10,000 Model 3 cars per week. Tesla's burning a lot of cash as it prepares to ramp up production and uh, reworks Solar City, and investors have penalized the company. I think shares are down about 5% upon this recording. But the second half of this year is going to be a big one for new products coming out of Tesla, and we're going to keep our eyes on that. You know, one, one thing I have to say about Tesla is that they're really getting a lot of competition. Um, it's really extraordinary to me, you know, how many electric vehicles are getting released this year, as well as plug-in hybrids and and cars that have automate um, autonomous driving features and so you know kudos to tesla for pushing the marketplace to where it is today but i I do think that the the slow lumbering you know traditional automakers are catching up well it's something that elon musk has called for he said there's not enough competition in this space a couple of years ago when he initially 
uh, unleashed many of Tesla's patents. So he's getting his wish, but nobody can make money on these. Nobody can make money on these cars yet. So I think General Motors is losing like nearly ten thousand dollars for every Bolt it sells. And Musk said that they're going to lose money on every Model Three for the first batch of cars. And the big question is when people are actually going to start making money on these more mainstream thirty thousand dollar range EVs. Well, it'll be all that demand response revenue that Catherine and I are trying to put together. Here you go. That's it, folks. Follow us on SoundCloud, Stitcher, iTunes, NPR One, and anywhere else you might get your podcasts. Send us an email, podcasts at greentechmedia.com, or better yet, send us a tweet. We do love feedback from our listeners. Um, Send us any uh, comments you have about the show or any story ideas. We are at The Energy Gang. And uh, Jigger, Catherine, and I are all on Twitter as well. So we'd love to hear from you. Catherine, have a good week and weekend. We'll catch you next week. Thanks. You too. Jigger, enjoy Savannah. I am and I will. With Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw, I'm Stephen Lacey, and we are The Energy Gang, a production of greentechmedia.com. Catch you next week. <laughs>